vendors like us have spent the last two years learning which home IPs tie to which companies. So point is, gotten pretty darn good at IP, even in the work from home. So as cookies go away, that will kind of become more important. Hey, it's Dan McGaw here. I'm a tech stack nerd and the CEO of the leading tech stack operations agency, Maga.io. Each week, I speak to executives to find out the stack they're using to drive revenue and make their goals a reality. This week, we've got John Miller. He is currently the CMO of Demandbase, one of the leading account-based marketing platforms. He's also formerly the founder of Marketo and Engageo, so a super OG to the MarTech space. For decades, he's been ahead of the ever-changing MarTech industry. In recent years, his focus has been on buying and merging companies to build a comprehensive, multifunctional, must-have ABM tool. He is now looking forward to a post-cookie world, positioning demand base as a go-to service for when the eventual shift happens. Today, John joins us to talk about his MarTech predictions, why he swears by dynamic advertising, and what that is, and a whole lot more. So let's get to John. Hey folks, I'm John Miller. I'm currently the Chief Marketing Officer at Demandbase. Been with Demandbase since June of 2020 when we merged Demandbase and Engageo together to form the new Demandbase. I was the CEO and founder at Engageo. Uh, before that, I was the CM- first CMO and co-founder at Marketo. Oh, wow. That's a pretty awesome background, man. So you definitely have been through building stacks and have been part of the stack for a long time. Yeah, I've been in MarTech since 1999. You know, even before Marketo, I was at a company called Epiphany. So long, I guess I'm a MarTech OG or something. That is for sure. And for the folks out there who don't know what OG stands for, original gangster, which you truly are, because I've been following you for many, many, many years. So it's an honor to have you here. You talked a little bit about, of course, you're the CMO of Demandbase now. You were merged in basically from Engageo, right? Help me understand a little bit what Engageo and then as well as Demandbase do now. Both Engageo and Demandbase were players in the account-based marketing category. Really, I mean, Demandbase was founded, I think, in 2006 or seven, and went through a couple of iterations and was then really probably the first major vendor to basically go all in on ABM. And I think they did that in 2014. And frankly, that's what helped unlock Demandbase's growth, you know, after kind of being around for six or seven years. You know, demand base approached ABM with kind of a top of the funnel uh, strategy initially. The demand based technology was really good at identifying accounts, like, hey, I've got a visitor on a page, what company do they work for? And then using that to target very specific account based advertising to the accounts that you cared about, and then measuring it works by measuring if more traffic came to your website from those accounts. Yeah, so it was a very advertising, top-of-the-funnel-centric approach to ABM. Whereas back in 2015, when I left Marketo to start Engageo, I knew I wanted to kind of get into this burgeoning ABM category because it did seem like it was growing and going to be the next big thing, which it turned out to be. You know, I approached it with much more of a middle-of-the-funnel marketing automation mindset where it was focused on taking all your first party data that you know about these accounts, what's sitting in your Marketo, in your Salesforce, in your email, in your calendar, and really unifying that and matching that at the account level, and then using that to give sales teams intelligence about what's happening, using it to prioritize time on the hottest accounts, and then ultimately to orchestrate 
multi-channel campaigns or what we called plays uh, using that kind of first party data. Over time, you know, demand base continued to innovate, added things like intent data, which became a really, really also important piece of the puzzle. For me, it almost feels like you're going to start stepping on the Zoom Info territory big time, right? Because at the end of the day, that's kind of their, their focus too. I wouldn't call it account intelligence for them, but their job is to provide you as much data as they can. We would see Zoom Info as our largest competitor. Yeah. Most people think we compete with Sixth Sense and Terminus, and we do, but we really compete with them primarily just in the ABM category. Whereas we see this sort of, you know, broader move towards this larger kind of go-to-market play, if you will. So what you're really seeing is this merging of or blurring of the lines between application vendors and data vendors. You know, back in my Marketo days, application data were separate, right? You bought your Marketo and there was no data in there until you put data in there. But now with this new emerging go-to-market platform category, the data comes with the application. Sometimes the data is the application. And probably the biggest thing that's driving that blurring, I think, is, is AI models. Obviously, machine learning and AI has become really, really important. The reality is the algorithms are kind of commoditized, right? Forest of trees or you name it. I mean, like you can go get these things off of GitHub or Amazon or something. What differentiates the models is the data that feeds them, the quality and the accuracy of the data. And that's why you see this sort of arms race almost, if you will, of the application vendors acquiring and owning data vendors. You know, a better analogy than an arms race is musical chairs. You know, eventually the music's gonna stop and somebody's gonna be left without a chair to sit in. And that's why Demandbase was the first mover in sort of acquiring the best assets. That arms race isn't unique to the data side of MarTech. You're likely aware of the acquisitions happening all the time in the tech space. Demandbase is clearly not alone in its vision to acquire and merge companies to create the best possible product for its customers. In 2021 alone, Citrix acquired project management company Rike for $2.5 billion, Intuit acquired MailChimp for $21 billion, and Salesforce acquired Slack for $27 billion. And that's just a few examples. Companies are racing to build best-in-class products, and in many cases, it's easier to buy than it is to build. Again, in many of these cases, if you turn a bunch of acquisitions and mergers into a suite of tools, it prevents your customer from having to do any integration. It improves their ability overall to adopt your solution and roll things out quickly because it's already connected. Instead of having to piece everything together, the solution is already set up and ready to go. The race to build the best products has been going on forever. But the process of buying and merging tech companies to build the best product has really taken off over the last few years and accelerated a lot during COVID. In part because of the pandemic, SaaS is in more demand than ever as we are all working from home and even sometimes remotely. Now let's get back to John. Help me understand, as a, as a MarTech company, right, what's in your stack? I'm going to assume you use demand base, of course, but like, what are the other major building blocks of your stack? Demand base is obviously the center of, of everything that we're doing, and that includes our data. We use our own data integrity product to constantly make sure that all the accounts we have are clean and normalized, our contacts are up to date and accurate. We're constantly adding new accounts you know, into our system. Because we tend to we want to sell to companies usually about 15 million of revenue and above. Yeah, you know, we'll go below that if it's a well-funded company that's growing fast, has a decent tech stack, et cetera. 
but so as companies kind of enter our ICP, we're constantly looking for them, identifying them, adding them into you know, our system using our data. And obviously that's all augmented with the technographics and the intent and all that kind of good stuff. We use demand base for then obviously our advertising. What's actually worked really, 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 really well for us is automatically changing, dynamically changing our ads as accounts move through different stages of the journey. So, you know, an account that we're interested in but is not really showing any intent or engagement, they kind of get almost emotional ads, right? Because <laughs> all we're trying to do is build a, a, some brand awareness and connection. Whereas an account that's a little further down the funnel, starting to in show intent and some engagement but not really in market, we're going to try to engage them with all leadership ads. An account that we're seeing is in market, right? Our predictive analytics say, they're going to be an opportunity in the next 30 days or so. They get pretty aggressive ads. Open opportunities get ads that are focused on validation across the buying committee. Things like, look, we're the number one vendor on the Gartner Magic Quadrant. Check it out. And then ads for customers even are focused on things like expansion, adoption. So that works really, really well. And we do that with display, but also we sync those audiences to Facebook, to Twitter, to Google for our pay-per-click even, and are dynamically changing the advertising we're doing on those channels as well. And that's sort of what we mean by orchestration, kind of getting all these things working together. And then things also kick off to outreach, which is our sales enablement tool. And then demand-based you know, is, is doing the lead to account matching, the measurement, et cetera. So yes, we, we are very good users of our own platform. Some of the other pieces, as you asked, we do use Marketo as our marketing automation. Of course, we wouldn't use anything else. If I had to say kind of the core tech stack, it's demand-based Marketo, Salesforce, Outreach, Gong, and WordPress. What's some of the, the more obscure long-tail tech that your team is using to be effective that maybe other people haven't heard about? Well, you know, I mean, just some of the other big ones we're using is Sendoso for our gifting and direct mail channel, Qualified for our chat, we just are rolling out Stencil now. That's probably yeah. a, a less common one. You know, as the Marketo guy, I don't really want to admit that Marketo can be complicated for a whole bunch of teams to use and that there needs to be kind of an easier interface for distributed teams. Yeah. But apparently, perhaps that's true. So my team really wants Stencil to make sure that we can distribute out campaign creation, uh, especially the emails. We are big on Asana for really? all of our project workflow management. So the whole creative department and our content team, you know, nothing gets done without Asana. We've been investing a lot on the customer marketing side too. So we rolled out Influitive for community and advocacy. We pay G2 and Trust Radius. And we have a tool called Point of Reference to manage the reference program. And product marketing, we use a competitive tool called Crayon. Crayon? What does Crayon do? It connects to your CRM and it basically creates profiles for competitors. First of all, it'll like look for news about the competition and bring that in. It lets my product marketers create swords and shields, you know, for each competitor. And then it tracks things like win rates against the competition and it sort of synthesizes it all up into battle cards. So if a rep goes into an opportunity and says, I'm competing against Six Sense, it'll bring up the Six Sense battle card for them right on that opportunity. 
Mm, I love battle cards. So love battle cards. Makes it nice and easy for you. Now, you were saying you, Influitive is another technology that you're using. Uh, that was started by the founder of Eloqua, if I recall? Yeah, I can tell you a fun story about that if you want. Yeah, I'd um, love to. Influitive was founded by Mark Organ, who there was the founder of Eloqua, which for those of you who don't know, Eloqua and Marketo were kind of the arch nemeses of the marketing automation era. But, you know, that doesn't mean we can't be friends. And I actually was and am friends with a lot of the Eloqua team. Uh, and when Mark was founding Influitive, he reached out to me and I actually invested in uh, Influitive Series A. Now, I was in their Series B. Anyway, so we've stayed, we sort of stayed in touch through the years. And then when I left Marketo and I was getting ready to start a co- you know, my next company, one of the things you need is a name. And you need a name with a URL. And like, like any entrepreneur, I was like coming up with all sorts of crazy domain names and like what's available and what can I buy? And then I finally found Engageo.com available on like a site of like premium URLs. So it was like five grand or something for Engageo.com. But then you still want the Twitter handle and the social accounts and things like that. So I, and I found a little, I did a little research, and there used to be a company whose domain was engage.io, so E-N-G-A-G.io, which was a small Canadian social company that Influitive had actually acquired. Oh, okay. So I call Mark Organ up, who knows at this point I'm starting a company. And I'm like, so what are you doing with Engageo? <laughs> you know? And he's like, well, I don't know. I was thinking about something for it. But yeah, it's really a better name for what you're It's a really good name for what you're doing. So at first he wanted equity in the company for it, which I didn't do. But in the end, uh, he sold me Engageo for, I think, four or five K. So anyway, long story short, the founder of Marketo bought the you know, name of his new company from the founder of Eloqua. Yeah, right, which is super, super hysterical to me. Uh, Mark's a good guy. So uh, 4K doesn't seem that bad, though, right? So, I mean, I think you got a, a pretty decent deal on that. He could have really raked you over the coals on that one if he wanted to, right? Well, he tried with the equity side of things. You know, he wanted like 25 True. basis points in the new company. I'm like, um, I'm raising money at a $20 million pre-valuation. So, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, it's not going to work. Oh, that's funny. That's a good one. I really, really like that. So what are your main KPIs or main goals that you're focused on? Is it all just top line revenue or are you focused on pipeline generation? Like what KPIs are you most focused on? Well, I mean, like most companies, obviously as a company, revenue matters. As a marketing department, we focus more on pipeline ourselves than on closed revenue. One of the things that I really am not a fan of is the concept of marketing generated pipeline or even a marketing-influenced pipeline. You know, maybe back in the Marketo days where marketing generated leads and like handed it like a baton over to the sales team and it was a linear process, maybe you could say this was marketing sourced or that wasn't. But that's not how buying is working today. And buying today is you know, much more nonlinear. I think the marketing and sales process looks a lot more like a soccer or if you're overseas, a football match where the ball moves back and forth, up and down the field in a very nonlinear fashion. You've got marketing and sales playing different positions, like forwards and fullbacks, but they're constantly passing the ball back and forth until somebody ultimately scores a goal. The primary metric should be just how many goals are, were scored. And ultimately, it's the team's goal that matters. 
marketing is measured on the total pipeline number, just as the SDRs are. If an AE creates an opportunity at an SDR's account, that SDR gets credit. And the reason why is because, you know what, maybe that SDR contacted that account four months ago or six months ago. And you know what, marketing gets credit too, because those people, even though the AE was the one who actually maybe like sent the cold email to the person that got the meeting, there's marketing air cover. I mean, you, there's always, you can always see that there's influence. And so we focus on just total pipeline, not marketing created or influenced pipeline. And that's a shared metric between the marketing and the sales team. Are the SDRs on marketing's team or sales team? For us, they report up to sales. I've had them report to me in marketing in the past as well. There's pros and cons. You know, I think the advantage of reporting to marketing is that you're all aligned on the same metric, right? You all care about pipeline. The disadvantage of reporting to marketing, which is a big one, is it means if, if, you, if your SDRs are a farm team into the sales team, then if SDRs in marketing, you kind of end up having your marketing teams hiring and training <laughs> your future salespeople, which is a little weird. And that's why for us, you know, they report to sales, sales manages the hiring and the training and the promotions, but there's a steep interlock, you know, between the marketing and the SDR team, even like the SDR leader comes to my staff meeting, for example. Um, and so that's working for us, but I wouldn't want to say anybody that's the only model. There's lots of other models that I think also can work perfectly well. Yeah, I've been interested. I've seen most recently inbound SDRs are on marketing, outbound SDRs are on sales. To me, that makes a little bit more sense um, compared to the whole SDR team being on marketing because I don't always think that it's smart to have a, a salesperson report to a marketing person because the way that we think about things usually is fundamentally different. Don't get me wrong, we're aligned in our direction, but it's a different thought process for a marketer compared to a salesperson. But even then, the, then you get a weird promotion path from the inbound to the outbound, which can kind of create some weirdness too. So, you know, again, all models can work. It really depends on the managers you have. Yeah, no, it makes sense. What John touched on is really interesting. It's also one of the many great examples of how he looks far ahead of the curve. As marketers, many of us might be familiar with the traditional four-step buying process. First, you have to be aware that something exists. Then you research it to understand if it's a good fit. Then they consider you against all their options and finally purchase your product if it's the best. But in the new digital world, it has become much more nonlinear. Nowadays, potential clients have a seemingly endless amount of information that they can sort through before they even raise their hand asking you for help. For example, say I was searching Google for a new lead generation and engagement tool. I might start seeing ads for Landbot, which may result in me becoming aware of this product. But instead of following the traditional journey and using Landbot's website for research and speaking with them, I'll more likely start reading different reviews across platforms like G2 Crowd, Software Reviews, or even Trust Radius before ever reaching out to their sales team. And this changes the whole process of that buyer's journey. I can go to Reddit and sift through forms. I can use Twitter so that way I can see what other people are tweeting. And I can watch user reviews on YouTube or maybe even listen to a podcast about them. And I'm going to do the same for all of Landbot's competitors. Recognizing this new nonlinear path and adapting to these patterns you see will help you guide potential customers to the sale. The trend puts more importance on knowing the stage in the journey people are at and optimizing the experience to prevent losing them from that buyer's journey. 
That's something that John has put a lot of emphasis on with his dynamic advertising strategy as people can go up and then also back down throughout those stages in that journey. What about analytics? That's primarily demand-based. Okay. A lot of our um, reporting is coming directly out of the tool. And then some of that data sinks, you know, our data sinks into Salesforce Mm -hmm. where we then have the Tableau. I forget actually what they call. Tableau CRM. And then we also do use Visible for multi-touch attribution, which is, you know, Marketo component. You know, what about like product analytics, right? Like how do you measure your product? So we have Pendo for that. And then that's integrated in with Salesforce as well. Because our CSMs want to see data about product usage. But we found it's a lot better to put it into CRM than ask them to log into Pendo. Mm. Uh, And we actually are just starting to use a little bit of full story on the product side as well. So interesting enough, you know, I want to go back to something you said. You said WordPress, right? When you think about your core stack. So, you know, I've been kind of giving people a hard time for switching to Webflow and jumping on this little bit of a hipster kind of thing. I don't think Webflow's very mature just yet, and there's a lot of things about it. But it sounds like you haven't made the change to a Contentful or a Webflow. You're still on WordPress. Any reasons why you're still using WordPress? I mean, it's super customizable. Well, first of all, it's not expensive. But also, it's you know, it's just eminently customizable. Every developer we might want to hire or every agency we might want to work with knows how to use it. There's yeah. a ton of plugins available. And, and, and it's been hardened up sufficiently that mm-hmm. you know every time we sort of do any kind of security testing on it, we pass with flying colors. I totally agree with your reasoning there um, because it, it is definitely an amazing platform and it's, it's pretty standard. So uh, definitely something that works out really good. Now, going back to... One of the things you had talked about, you were talking about leveraging Marketo, right? And then naturally it's connected to Salesforce, connected to demand base. And then you also have Visible, right? So like, are you doing, naturally you're running all of these ads, the dynamic ads all over the place. How is that hard for Visible? Like, are you super focused on attribution and how are you using attribution to be effective? So we use Visible for attribution across all marketing touches, not just our advertising, right? Trade shows, email campaigns, uh, frankly, anything that has a campaign response or -hmm. success goes through Visible. We do track, for lack of a better word, responses or, you know, leads, if you will, uh, that come through advertising with Visible as well. But that's not our primary way we measure our advertising because I've never actually met a marketer who would say, wow, I have a great cost per lead from my advertising. Advertising is much more like a trade show where a big reason you're doing it is the awareness and the lift you get that supports your other channels. Yes, you'll get some direct leads. And at Demandbase, we do get some direct clicks. But what we really measure is called lift, where Mm -hmm. we look at the engagement that we get from an account in say a 30 day window before advertising started. And then we look at the engagement after the advertising started. And we wanna know two things. One, for the accounts, some accounts had zero engagement. So how many accounts now are engaging with us that weren't before? Mm -hmm. And how many accounts were engaging with us but are now engaging with us in a significantly greater way? And together, that's what Lyft is all about. You know, and so that might mean more web traffic. It might mean they're more likely to open our emails. That, I think, is a much better measure of advertising success. I guess my curiosity would be, as you talked about, somebody coming from the advertisements, coming to your site, 
And then it sounds like you're able to connect those two things together. How is your technology connecting this anonymous visitor on the website to who they are? Like, what are you doing to connect those dots? If they don't click, we're using the account as the connecting mechanism. You know, I started advertising to that account. And one of the cool things about our advertising is we really optimize the bidding to show the ads to the specific people at that account who are the cookies that we're showing intent for your topics. So it's very likely the ads are in front of the right people because it's the people who are interested in your category and your, your stuff. Now, we do those, we show those ads, and then people show up on our website. I can't guarantee you it's the same person who saw the ad, yeah. but I know it's the same account. And to me, that's good enough, right? I mean, just cause and effect. I showed ads, more, sh- more traffic. Even if it's not the direct person, they probably talked to somebody or you know, said something. So I know it's working and I don't have to tie them directly, directly. Now, when you think about, you had mentioned cookies in that, right? So you're tying together the cookies. What's your perspective in regards to third-party cookies going away and then how to work around that? Yeah, well, it's obviously a big topic. The first piece, which is just John Miller's personal opinion, is that Google keeps pushing it off. I wonder how many more times they're going to push it off. You know, because they have pretty big incentives. I mean, they want to sort of, quote, unquote, do privacy right, but they have pretty big incentives to make sure there's a good alternative in place before they, you know, they turn it off. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see this whole thing push out a little bit longer. But it w- it'll, it'll happen eventually to some degree. So, you know, what's going to happen in that world is a couple things. You know, first, the pendulum will swing a little bit back towards IP as sort of a primary identification mechanism. You know, and obviously IP used to be pretty good, and then COVID happened, and then we all started working from home, and yeah. IP went away. Two things are going on, though. One... Slow return to the office, not for everybody, but at least some. But mm-hmm. two, more importantly, vendors like us have spent the last two years learning which home IPs tie to which companies mm-hmm. and also how to get that updated with first-party data. So if somebody changes jobs, we won't know instantly, but a second they fill out a form on any site where we have our code, i.e. any one of our customers, we can catch the new company. And then tie that, you know, update the IP. So point is, gotten pretty darn good at IP, even in the work from home. So as cookies go away, that will kind of become more important, which is a B2B only thing, right? I mean, which is, it's kind of nice that B2B advertisers aren't going to be as affected by the um, cookies going away. Two other things I think are going to go on. Second one is your first party data is going to become more important. There's a lot of talk about zero-party data even, which is what the customers actually explicitly give you permission to use. That's all going to become more important. And then things like live ramp IDs will become more of a way to sort of target people using your first-party data, you know, out on, on the open web. So that'll sort of take the place of cookies for a lot of different companies. Let's jump on John's answer really quick. He just mentioned a term that you may notice popping up more and more in marketing. That's zero-party data. It sounds interesting, but what does it actually mean? The data we're most used to working with is third-party and first-party data. Third-party data is when another company collects data through its own means and sells it back to you. 
There are a few different types of third-party data. As an example, Facebook is a third-party consumer data platform that you pay for by buying ads on their platform. Products like Clearbit, who provide you demographic, firmographic, and technographic enrichment are third-party data enrichment providers. Then with first-party data, it is when you collect data about your customers in a passive manner through analytical tracking. Think like purchasing history in Google Analytics or the amount of time someone has used your app in Amplitude. Getting data directly from the source is perhaps the best data that you can get, which is their actual behavior. And first-party data is collected passively through interactions the customer makes with your business. However, zero-party data is when the user gives you their data. As an example, at the checkout process on your site, if someone fills in their name and address, this is zero-party data that they gave you. Another example would be gated content. The visitor must give you information in exchange for that informative PDF. Considering all of this, I was curious why John liked differentiating between first-party and zero-party data. This is what he said. It's a good marketing term for explicitly opted-in data. You know, like, yeah. I am letting you have this data for the purposes of being more relevant and personalized to me. And I understand the value exchange that's going on here. So, yeah, um, it, it is still first-party data with, like, nice privacy-compliant marketing spin on it. Now let's get back to the rest of what John was saying. He was about to tell us about another strategy he's working on for the inevitable end of cookies. The other thing that we've been experimenting with a lot, even if we lose the ability to put our ads in front of high intent cookies, mm -hmm. which as I said, we actually get seven times more engagement today when we put our ad in front of a high intent cookie versus an average cookie. So it's pretty mm -hmm. amazing. Even if that goes away, what we're finding is we can still get four to five times more engagement by focusing our ads on what we call high intent pages, which is really just a fancy way of saying contextual advertising, right? Mm -hmm. Put the ads that are on the top, on the pages that are on the topics that are about your business, which is again, like kind of obvious, but it seems to be working pretty well. So point yeah. is cookies will eventually go away and B2B is gonna be just fine when it happens. What is your opinion on B2C then? Well, when I mentioned that Google is not gonna let it, the whole thing go away without a solution, there are obviously way more focused on B2C solutions than B2B just because of where the dollars are. Now they're inventing this like topics. You know, every browser will have five, five categories of recent topics that this browser has shown interest in. And they'll let people target that. You know, they'll come up with a B2C answer. It just probably won't be as targeted as what we'll be able to do in B2B. Yeah. When you think about, you know, the the recommendations that you would give to other marketers, right? If you had three recommendations that you would give to other marketing leaders out there about how to build their stack and not mess it up, like what would be some of the things you would advise? Well, I think that the answer, first of all, changes over time given the maturity of different categories. So four or five years ago, if you wanted to sort of be on the cutting edge and be doing cool new things like account-based marketing, you had to buy a bunch of different things. You had to buy your data over here and you had to buy your advertising here and your tent here and your engagement analytics here. And I wouldn't have told anybody not to do that because that's what you had to do. As the ABM category has matured and evolved though, it's followed a similar arc to what marketing automation did, which is over time, it matures and consolidates. You know, today you can kind of get all that ABM stuff you need from a single vendor. If I were advising somebody today, I would encourage them to do that as opposed to let me try to cobble together a whole bunch of stuff. 
another piece of advice is that you know where where possible, I am a big fan of trials. Salespeople don't like offering trials because it delays their quota relief. But as a advisor and as a you know buyer, like where where you can have the opportunity to try something out, I think it's worth doing. All too often, people do buy technology with sort of the hope that that's the impetus to put a strategy in place. Yes, it is actually much more effective to have the strategy and buy the technology to automate what you can't do or to streamline what you are trying to do but otherwise can't. Now, one of the things I talk a lot about with people, right, when they think about measuring the stack and they think about building tools and building all this stuff, a lot of it's focused on results, right? Like, hey, listen, I'm going to increase MQAs or I'm going to drive SQLs, whatever it's going to be, and they're talking about a result. You know, what are your thoughts in regards to people focusing more on it from a labor efficiency perspective, right? I think it's one of those unwritten things that's really, really important that people don't track. But if you can set up a product like Marketo and you can automate 30% of somebody's job or 60% of somebody's job, you get much more labor efficiency. I mean, is that something that you talk about in your talk track with your product or you see other people using? Because demand base makes it so that an SDR only spends 10 minutes compared to four hours, right? So like how much is labor efficiency something that you've seen in your career when people are thinking about these products or tools? Some, but maybe not as much as you think. And I think there's two reasons for that. You know, the, the first is that that's a message that tends to resonate only at the top level of the organization. At the middle levels of the organization, people might be thinking, oh, my job goes away. And so it, it can have kind of a negative you know, repercussion. But the other one that's a little bit more subtle and more important is that most of these technologies are letting you do something that perhaps you could do manually but would be otherwise so time-consuming and annoying that nobody actually does. It's sort of hypothetical time savings off of some ideal state. Mm. But you're not actually at doing that sort of annoying manual thing, so therefore you don't kind of really need it. I used to say one of the biggest misnomers in MarTech is that marketing automation actually requires you to hire people as opposed to saving people because... You can do amazing things with it that you could not do if you didn't have marketing automation, but you're not really automating somebody's job away. I'm not saying that there's never cost savings as part of the justification. I had one customer who was spending $75,000 a year on an outside service to just do lead to account matching. You know, new lead comes into their system, make sure it gets tied to the right account. And then they brought Engageo, now Demandbase in. That gets automated overnight. Boom. Business case justification right there. $75,000. So you do see things like that happening. We have another customer who was able to stop using another $123,000 a year technology because Demandbase just included it. So they didn't have to pay for this other tech. And so you do see some of those justifications. Just as, I don't know if it's the primary one. Now, at what point do you feel, and not to pick on Intercom here, but Intercom basically was a chat tool on your website that did some support, and then it basically ate nine of its competitors, but it didn't do anything, all of it great, right? So Intercom has a knowledge base, it's an email marketing tool, it does all these things. At what point do you feel that adding in all of these features, you start getting diminishing returns on having more and more features? Like, is there a point when you think you get bloated and the features don't add value at that point? Um, what is your opinion there on your own product? I think it's important that it's all done with a very strong point of view around kind of what is kind of a cohesive end state. 
Yeah. Just adding this and this and this and this. Yeah, it doesn't work. But you know, we at Demandbase, we have a very specific point of view about what a future go-to-market platform looks like. And adding additional capabilities within that concrete point of view tends to create something that is then kind of a nice you know, end state. You know, and I sort of talked about the musical chairs before. The other problem with Intercom is you know, when they started buying stuff is some of the best assets had already been purchased. You know, so if you're stuck buying the third or fourth best vendor in the category, you're going to have a hard time really building a you know, best-of-breed stack. Mm. You know, I mean, that's why demand base, you know, we, we moved first. We bought Inside View and Demand Matrix and arguably Engage You, right? And that's all best-of-breed because we want to have a great final product. And I agree with the best in breed model, uh, so totally agree. Now, when you think about the predictions of the stack, right? What are we going to see in the next five to ten years? Like, what do you think is going to be the future? I think kind of there's three trends that I see kind of really affecting the go-to-market stack in the next couple of years. We've already talked about the first one, which is the blurring the lines between the application vendors and the data vendors, and I think that's going to continue. And increasingly, who has the best data? Who has the best intelligence? will be a major part of the decision criteria on which application you're going to go with. The second trend is something we haven't talked much about, but the analysts are starting to talk about a lot, which is the convergence between the ABM platforms and the marketing automation platforms. I mentioned way back at the beginning that I built Engageo with sort of a marketing automation mindset. My not-so-secret mission at Engageo was that we were building towards a next-generation marketing platform mm. that could eventually, I'm not going to say replace marketing automation, but be an alternative to marketing automation. And when you think about what we have now in the new demand-based one platform, a lot of it sounds pretty similar to a marketing automation tool. We sync all your first-party data. We let you segment, create segmentation you know, on it to build lists and so on. We let you then build what we call orchestrations, but frankly, looks a lot like a Marketo Smart campaign, which are, you know, for this list, take this sequence of actions. The reality is the only thing that we don't really have is native email. It's not that big a leap before you're going to start seeing the ABM platforms adding native email and other capabilities. I'm not going to say they're going to just completely wipe out the marketing automation category, but you'll start seeing more and more companies, especially companies who have complex ABM go-to-markets, realizing that maybe they can get away without a separate marketing automation tool and they can consolidate their stack a little bit there. The third big trend, I wouldn't even say trend, I think it's a question on the horizon. And that's going to be the sort of dynamic between vertical applications and horizontal applications. Demand base is a vertical application. And by that, I mean we sort of span the three layers of the stack, but I like to call the three Ds. So the data layer, the decision layer, and the delivery layer. I.e. with demand base, we are your data. You know, we are a CDP, really. Yeah. You know, in, in that we consolidate all your first-party data and clean it and augment with your third-party data and then let you do segmentation on top of it. Then your decision layer is kind of your workflow. Your, your AI and your business rules that say, if this and that, do these things, you know, as well as some of your analytics. And then your delivery layer is your actual in-channel execution, whether that's sending an email or an ad or alerting a salesperson or changing a website or running a webinar, you name it. 
So a demand basis vertical spans data decisions and delivery. But you are seeing companies emerge that are really horizontal specialists. For example, all the CDP vendors are primarily living in that data layer. Some of them kind of blur up into decisions, but they primarily live in that data layer. You have other vendors that are really kind of workflow specialists. On the B2C world, Braze is probably the best example mm. that work really nicely with CDPs, but they're sort of doing the decisions and then Braze pushes up into the delivery layer. And then you have other tools that are really just delivery channels like Sendoso, for example, for direct mail. And, you know, what... Honestly, the question is, I don't, I have some thoughts on how it might play out, but I'm not going to, I can't know for sure, is how are companies going to sort of choose between vertical stacks or horizontal stacks, or what kind of hybrid stacks are they going to end up putting together? My hunch is you'll see a lot of hybrid stacks, at least over the next few years, but does that eventually kind of synthesize out into something? I, I don't know yet. Yeah. And it's going to be really fascinating to watch. And to be quite frank with you, it's the reason why I'm still in business and plan to be here in 10 to 15 years. So, you know, John, you know, I've taken so many notes in regards to this. This has been an amazing conversation. I really do appreciate you taking the time. This has been great for the audience. Great for me. Uh, thanks for being here. I always love talking about MarTech. So it's been fun. What an amazing conversation with John. There was a lot of really good stuff in there, and I loved his trends and future of MarTech. Let's break a few of these down. First, I loved how John was able to break down the vertical and horizontal applications in our stack. If you were to look at your MarTech tools, you'll be able to see how John's concept of the three Ds works. First, you have data, then you have decisions on that data, and then delivery of marketing based upon those decisions. This could be looked at vertically on your stack as data on the bottom, decisions in the middle, and then delivery on top. There are tools like DemandBase that are vertically integrated into this and have data, does the decisioning, and delivers the campaign. And they are not alone in this vertical integration. Tools like Amplitude, Segment, and Marketo are vertically integrated, but only through two stacks of those layers. If you were to look at your stack based upon the 3Ds and look at the horizontal focus tools, you would have tools like MailChimp that are horizontally integrated as they mainly do decisioning and delivery for email, but aren't arbiters of your data or really integrated into the rest of the stack. Tools like Sendoso are very horizontally focused as all they really do is the delivery component. This is a pretty eye-opening way to look at things if you're trying to understand how to build the best stack to grow your business or if you're one of the players in the MarTech space. To me, most companies start horizontal in the stack and grow vertically over time as they have a better chance to integrate themselves into the business and then other tools. I find it fascinating how we can take this new 3Ds framework and see how the data vendors are being gobbled up by the platforms and the platforms are being gobbled up by the data companies. Recently, Zoom Info acquired Chorus.ai. This is a data company, Zoom Info, buying Chorus.ai, one of the leading sales call intelligence platforms. Chorus's service listens to all the sales calls in a company. It then uses AI to point out like what words or sales call strategies help win or close deals. It also records every word from the call and can tell you who said what in the call. I can only imagine all of the valuable information being set over the phone that could be parsed and then stored in ZoomInfo's data center to improve the quality of their data to help their other data customers. 
or use all of the data from Zoom info about the customer on the call to help deliver sales tips to the sales rep on how to best close that deal based upon Zoom info's demographic, firmographic, and technographic, and even maybe their previous sales calls with other companies. I don't know about you, but some of this stuff blows my mind. The convergence of all of this data, the artificial intelligence, and the power of these platforms is really going to change how we build our stacks in the future. And it's going to be a big shift for us over the next few years as artificial intelligence gets a lot more powerful and can put this data into decisioning and help us deliver the right messages at the right time. That's it for this week. Join me each week on The Stack. Because you're interested in the podcast, your next step should be to go build your stack at the magal.io website using our free stack builder. Just go check out the site. You'll be able to build your stack for free and help you get everything more organized. See you next week.